Well, it's a joy to be here. And uh, I don't know what retirement fully looks like yet, because we've had a little bit of a break. But uh, we're still getting around speaking. We're as busy with people as ever. Uh, you know, if you love people, you meet them everywhere. <laughs> and uh, part of what we've done since retiring is just uh, go walking in the mall because it was so icy this winter. And we've made friends with all kinds of shopkeepers and uh, uh, we ended up running across someone I didn't even know lived close by for 15 years, a second cousin. And we have just clicked. We meet regularly and just befriending them and hoping that we have an opportunity spiritually to uh, work in their lives as well. And uh, we've been involved in all kinds of churches. There's a walking club that meets there over winter. But they're all from Baptist church. So I've reconnected with some Baptists. I've joined a, a men's Bible study of Baptists. And we have a great time with them. And we're just busier than ever. And just recently, uh, Millwood's Free Church, who just lost their pastor, asked whether we would come halftime and be their interim pastor. So now we're doing that. So now we're really caught because we've been trying to make a home in a Christian Reformed church, so we're part of that. My membership is at Bonacord Free Church. We know all these Baptists we're connecting with. But now we're at Millwoods as well. So we're trying to fit into four different churches somehow. That's complicated. <laughs> so, um, but we're, we're loving life. God's been good to us, given us a uh, good measure of health yet. So, uh, and we're glad we, whenever we get an opportunity like this to come to a church and speak as well. I was fortunate it was a Sunday off for me. So, I have to admit, oh, by the way, one of the delights we have is that your former pastor, who is doing a great job, by the way, uh, happens to live just up the road from us in a neighboring development. So, uh, they even last Sunday, I believe it was, popped by on their bicycles and so we probably get to we'll get to see them more than you do, <laughs> which is is a joy. They've been friends with us for many years, so we're glad, and they are doing a good work. Well, I have to confess, I was given an extremely difficult assignment coming here. I was supposed to preach on Acts chapter four, verse thirty-two to the end of chapter 5, verse 11. And if you know that account, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I haven't preached on this. I don't know whether ever. Because quite frankly, it's not a nice story. 
It's one of those stories we wish wasn't in the book of Acts, in the early church. It seems like God is having a fit of anger, which doesn't quite seem to fit with the rest of what God loves to do. And so um, it's, it's a difficult assignment, but we'll do the best we can, and uh, you can uh, have a difference of opinion with me on some of this, and that you're more than entitled to. Ananias, of course, means God is gracious, and it hardly fits this text at all. Sapphira means beautiful. We get the sapphire stone from that name. Beautiful stone, blue stone. And it uh, doesn't seem like she's living up to her name either. Uh, we know that they were early believers of the uh, church at Pentecost. It seemed like they were part of that early group that hung around Jerusalem for uh, quite a time after the birth of the church. Uh, but somehow they didn't live up to the nobleness of their names. And what follows as a result is Peter coming across like he's a judge and executioner, which, uh, I mean, somewhat resonates with what he was sometimes like in the past. Lord, should we take our swords? <laughs> right? Uh, but we thought that he was past that. And God seems to lash out in a fit of temper. And it seems like the whole reason is that there's a bit of deception going on by Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if God killed all of us who sometimes uh, are a little bit deceptive, how many of us would be here today? I think I might be absent. I'm not sure whether you would be. I suspect most of us would be. So how do we understand this passage and apply this account given to us? Well, let's look at the backdrop of the story, first of all, of the part in Acts chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything was belonging to him as his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there wasn't a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be, be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought it to the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. The key here is that little phrase, and abundant grace was upon them all. This is not uh, the forerunner of the Hutterite movement, uh, I don't think, although they maybe look to this as their own uh, communal living. This isn't advocating that. 
you have to remember that Acts is a descriptive book. It's not really a prescriptive book. And by that I mean it describes what did happen. It's not necessarily telling us this always has to happen. Uh, If this was always supposed to happen, then probably somewhere in the teaching epistles, the apostles would have said, okay, from now on, when you're a believer, you've got to sell everything. You've got to put it in a common pot and uh, live together. That would be uh, prescriptive. But that's not what actually happened here. This is describing what did happen, but not what always has to happen. But there was something that was happening here that probably should happen because of other passages in Scripture. That there was this sense of mutual care for one another. The rich didn't have too much. The poor didn't have too little. And all of this was driven by grace, not by obligation at all. Um, Because the actual rendering here is not that everyone who had property sold it, but the the Greek is more that from time to time somebody would sell a piece of property if they had surplus and distribute it as an offering and lay it at the apostles' feet. So neither is this advocating that if you're a great televangelist that you should be building your empire by everyone bringing money to you and laying it at your feet. There are, of course, uh, some of preachers that kind of have that kind of ministry. They think they're entitled to way above and beyond everyone else. Uh, That's not what is advocated here. But the whole idea is that nobody is hoarding wealth. Rather, they're living out what Paul suggested in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13, that there was this mutual sharing that the the rich didn't have too much, the poor didn't have too little, because they shared with a sense of equality for each other. Now, certainly, I think we can recognize that the rest of Scripture does advocate that the church should have this mutual care for the people within their midst. So it's generosity on full display. And Barnabas is cited here as one who did sell a piece of property that was surplus to him, and he took all the proceeds and he brought it to the apostles and said, Here, uh, distribute this wherever there is need. Now, there's no judgment given here for having wealth. And I don't think we should in any way imply that people cannot be wealthy if they are believers. That's uh, not being advocated here. There's no judgment for having wealth. But the other side of it is there is no personal glory for giving of your wealth. Have you noticed how simplistically it states Barnabas had a piece of property, he sold it, and gave it to the apostles? It doesn't say, as a result, he is a stone etched in Jerusalem. 
with his name on it or anything else that there was uh, any kind of glamour or glory given to Barnabas for it. This was just standard fare that people gave generously without any sense of wanting to get attention or personal glory. I, uh, I think the idea was simply that God was so at work that people were generous, sacrificial, but everyone had the idea the glory goes to God for how he's moved in the hearts of people. And that really is the way it should be. We're simply passing on God's wealth through our fingers when we give. And uh, we have to be careful that we don't get tainted by it. I think uh, Paul calls it at one place filthy lucre. (laughs) They say that if you actually check how many germs are on a dollar bill, uh, it's rather surprising. We realize it is filthy lucre. Um, Possibly, I don't know how you clean dollar bills uh, so that they wouldn't have a certain amount of germs or viruses spread through them. But whatever. The idea is that God gives everything we have. There's nothing we have received. God didn't first give us. And so when we pass it on, the glory really has to go to him as the first giver and not to ourselves. So this is the context of the story here. Everyone in the early church living out a gracious, generous faith. And then enters Ananias and Sapphira. And you note that there's a contrast because chapter 5 begins with the word but. And whenever you have the word but, you have to look what's before because it's a contrast to what's coming after. Barnabas is a demonstration of what should be and what was happening, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Oh, nothing wrong with that. They had some wealth, and they sold it too. So far, so good. And they were bringing it to the apostles. So far, so good. Nothing wrong with that. They did just the very same thing that Barnabas did. But then it says, but they kept back some of it for themselves. Now, before you want to say, oh, that's the problem. No, so far, so good. Because Peter goes on and he says, after it was sold, were the proceeds not under your control to do with as you wish? So, what they did, keep some of it for themselves, perfectly good. Nothing wrong with that. Barnabas gave all of it. 
Ananias and Sapphira said, you know, we can't afford to give all of it. We're going to keep a bit of it. Nothing wrong with that. Peter said, it's under your control. What's the problem then? Sin was giving too little of it while pretending they gave it all. Peter asks, was this what you actually sold it all for? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, of course, when Sapphira comes a little later, is this the price that you sold? Yes, yes. It's the full price. See, there's the hitch. It's passing it off as though they gave the full amount of what they had sold it for. Now, you know that generosity is never really measured in the amount of a gift. Do you? The person that gives $100,000 to a project may not be giving any more than somebody who gives $1,000. Jesus lifted up a widow at the temple with her two mites and said she gave more than all the others who were pouring in a lot of money. How did she give more? Jesus said she needed that to live on. Now you know you can give out of your surplus. Or you can give out of your storehouse, your savings. That's Mary with the alabaster vial. That was savings. Or you can give out of your what I call survival, what you need to live on. And the measure that God puts as to the gift is in the sacrifice it took to give that, not in the amount. I think David really caught that well when uh, he was judged with a plague for counting the troops, so to speak, in Israel. And when this plague finally ended, he was going to offer a sacrifice. And he comes to Aaronah, the Jebusite, and he said, Oh, Aaronah, I'd love to buy your oxen to make a sacrifice here on your threshing floor. And Aaronah says, You're the king. You can have the oxen. In fact, I'll throw in the wood. It's all yours for nothing. Just make your sacrifice. And David comes back in 2 Samuel 24, 24. He says, I'm going to surely buy it from you. For I will not offer to my Lord what costs me nothing. You see, David caught that aspect of giving. It's cost. It's the sacrifice in it. And if I'm just giving something that somebody's already given to me first, there's been no cost to me. 
So the idea was the cost. And Ananias and Sapphira were trying to pass this off as having given a huge piece of property, whatever it was, and having given the full amount, but they hadn't. So the cost that they were implying wasn't really there. Now, I think the aspect of deceit certainly is here. They conspired with the idea that they maybe would get a similar glory to what people had noticed in Barnabas. Barnabas, of course, didn't get any glory for it. No no recognition even mentioned for, for his great sacrifice. He just gave it out of a generous heart. But for them, it was the idea that, well, maybe people will think of us as just as good as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So there's this whole idea of not just pretending, but actually of conniving. I think we recognize that there are shades of deceit in Scripture. Paul talks about the Corinthians being having carnality. We, we use that word, right? Sometimes carnal Christians. What do we mean by that? Generally, we mean that they profess belief, but they fall short. But the thing about a carnal person is that they know it. And they're not trying to pretend they're not yet. A carnal Christian knows I'm carnal. I know I don't measure up. The Corinthians knew. Then there's hypocrisy. There's a different level of deceit. Jesus, of course, had tremendous trouble with hypocrites, particularly in relation to the Pharisees. Hypocrisy goes beyond carnality. Hypocrisy is we fall short, just like the carnal people, but we act or we pretend as though we don't. And that was Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. They were pretending that, nope, we're flawless. It's a different kind of deceit. But what you have here is even a third level, what I would call duplicity. What's duplicity? Well, duplicity is when we fall short, but we pretend to not do so to deliberately deceive for advantage. That's duplicity. We had an interesting example of that you listen to the news at all, at the end of April, April 29th, Vicki White. How many of you heard the story of Vicki White? No, not many of you. Well, Vicki White is a penitentiary officer, or was, I should say, in uh, Florence, Alabama. 
She had served there for years and years, almost a life history of it, I think something like 20 years. Completely unblemished record. She was known as somebody who did everything by the book. Totally trusted. And at the end, when she decided she was going to retire, she filled her retirement papers out. Sold her home, came in for her last day of work. And on her last day of work, she escorted a notorious criminal, a murderer, escorted Casey White, not a relative, but Casey White, on a feigned health assessment. And the two of them escaped to hopefully live on the lamb. Wow. Hard to imagine that somebody would do that. 20 years, a totally spotless record. Your very last day of work. And you're going to wreck it all. How does that happen? She knew the danger of Casey White. I mean, she had been the corrections officer over him for how many years? Knew he was a dangerous, violent criminal. She knew the laws. And as the other sheriffs told her on the media, Casey, you know how this is going to end. These things don't end well. And so she shocked everyone who knew her, everyone who worked with her, even her own mother, by having a side to her that she totally kept hidden. Obviously it had been there. They had connived over this thing for a long time. But she used what she knew, and she used what others thought of her to obviously get something she really wanted. That's duplicity. That's a wonderful example of duplicity. It's living up to ideals so that the reputation you have will serve and get you what you want. And that's Ananias and Sapphira. There are people who do this all the time. In Mark chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus talks about the Pharisees and he says, you Practice Corbin so that you don't have to help others. What does that mean, Corbin? 
Well, the Old Testament law, and it started, I think, actually with the story of Achan. God said, all of Ai is going to be Corban to me. Corban meant dedicated to God. That's why God dealt so treacherously with Achan. Because God said, that's mine. You can't have it. So uh, the Pharisees caught on to that and said, you know what? I'm supposed to take and look after my elderly parents in their old age. That's part of my, my responsibility as a spiritual leader. But if I take and say that everything in my house is dedicated to God, guess what? My parents can't have any of it (laughs) because it's God's now. So I get to have it all, keep it all, but I don't have to give anything away because I've already, in a sense, given it away. It's God's. Isn't that unique? Boy, shrewd to think you can do that. Well, they figured they could. And that's one of the problems Jesus had had with the Pharisees. He said, you do this so that you don't have to help other people under the pretense that you're so holy that God has everything that you have. Oh. So it's a contradictory doubleness for the purpose of misleading others. And that's the greatest danger. In the case of Vicki White and Casey White, the greatest threat was not that Casey was a known violent criminal. That wasn't the greatest criminal, the, the greatest threat. The greatest threat was that Vicki was a criminal on the inside but posed as a spotless lawkeeper. Now, we all fall short in our lives, and that's why we have to continue to be honest. We have to invite God's Spirit to search us. We have to confess our sins. We have to seek continual cleansing. But the danger is when we say, I'm not prepared to let God do that. And I want to do things my way to get what I want. Notice what Peter says is the problem. He says, you have put the Lord to the test. You've put the Lord to the test. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that search work. And when we once say, Holy Spirit, I'm not prepared to listen because I want it my way, we're in tremendous danger. Well, what's the result of this? The judgment of God is very swift in this instance. It seems like it's almost a lightning flash in a way that maybe sometimes we have longed for. (laughs) 
Haven't you ever just said, Lord, why don't you strike somebody? Right? You see them do something wrong and you just say, Lord, why do you tolerate this? Most of the time God does tolerate. But in this instance, he doesn't. In this case, there's not even a second chance. It all seems rather non-redemptive by God. Why such reaction when we know that the church has a lot of sin? There's a lot of hypocrisy in the church. I want to suggest several reasons why God responded so swiftly. Number one is simply that the church is in its real early infancy. And when something is young, it's tender, it's fragile. And the church here is extremely fragile. And we know that even as parents, we're far more diligent about cleanliness and health factors with our young babies than we are when we are with our teenagers, for example, right? You know, one of the great ironies, we've just come out of COVID. Some say we aren't out of it yet. Maybe not. I don't know. But I'm glad at least we're meeting and we're not having to mask anymore and be as uh, fussy about hand washing and all that. Maybe we should be. I, I don't know. But the irony of it was that when we sent the kids back to school, the parents of the four and five and six and seven-year-olds became hyper about needing to mask and proper sanitation and all the vigilance of keeping these little kids healthy. It was kind of ironic to me because actually, right from the start of COVID, they said that children are the least vulnerable to catching it. And yet as parents, we were the most paranoid for them. Isn't that strange? But that's the way we are. Something is young. It's it's fragile. We want to make sure that they stay healthy. The teenagers would go off and they had to wear their masks to high school and the moment they could, they'd pop them off. Nobody said boo. Well, the church here is in its infancy, so it needed to be protected. The second reason is simply deception. The lying here, the problem was not of lying to the church. But rather, Paul or Peter says here, Luke, both in verse 3, 4, and 9 of chapter 5, he says, you were lying to the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and you actually go against what the Holy Spirit is speaking. You're going against the operating system God has placed in you as a believer. 
and suddenly you've injected a virus into the computer system and everything gets derailed. God has placed his spirit in us to keep us on track. And the moment we say, I'm not going to listen anymore to that, we're in grave danger because, as uh, the writer of Hebrews says, if you once reject the Holy Spirit, what other means is there for you to be saved? God doesn't have another plan. So certainly that's part of the issue here. The third reason is simply the threat to God's own glory. The testimony of all this giving was not to the people who were doing the giving. The testimony was going to God. And the world was looking on saying, my, what a God they have. Bear in mind, this is in the Roman culture. This was unheard of. And uh, they had never seen people live like this. And so God, their God, was getting tremendous glory because of how they were living. Now, the moment that Ananias and Sapphira step in, what they're saying is, I want some of the glory. You've heard it said many a time, God doesn't share his glory. He says, my glory is my glory. I don't share in it. You can bask in some of it like Moses on the mountain, and you'll come down, your face will be shining because of it. But as Paul said, that wasn't Moses' glory. That was God's glory shining out from him. We're not allowed to take God's glory away. And Ananias and Sapphira were going to do some of that. But then there's a fourth reason. This is the part we always struggle with, with judgment. We struggle that God judges, but actually judgment is God's strange mercy. Have you ever thought of that? When God evicted Adam and Eve from the garden, After they sinned. Remember he planted his angels there. And said you can't come back. Why did he do that? He did that because the tree of life was still there. And having eaten of the tree. Of the knowledge of good and evil. And having become sinful. If they ate of the tree of life. The only eternal life they'd know. Is a sinful life. God says, you can't come back. I'm going to guard that tree. It wasn't to punish Adam and Eve. It was actually his mercy so that they would die and have a need of a savior so they could have eternal life thereafter. Judgment is God's strange mercy. It says in verse 11 that fear came over the whole church. God does sometimes actually deal very swiftly and drastically. And I think he does that still sometimes today. We've certainly heard of it. 
We've been a part of it in one situation where God removed several people from a church who had been very dominant and controlling, and the whole church lived in fear of a few family members together. And God finally just took them out. I remember a dear saint in that church coming to me and saying, Pastor, you don't have to say anything. We know God is talking. You don't have to. God sometimes does that. Rarely, but I think sometimes he does. But God's judgment is actually his sparing mercy so that we don't persist in our sinful ways. And sometimes the church stay needs to have that so that we stay within the way. Knowing that the fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of church health. Right? It is the beginning of church health. So what are we to learn from this account? As I said, it's a difficult passage. Well, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And sometimes there are people who get in the way. And God is protective and he's zealous for his body. And Ananias and Sapphira are not the only people in the church who have tried to subvert God's glory or have wanted to take and live a life of duplicity. And God can and he does sometimes judge and removes those people. God tells us, or Paul does, he says, judge yourselves in relation to the body and do it rightly so that we will not be judged. He says, as a result, and he's speaking of the Corinthian church, he says, as a result of not having done so, some of you are sickly and some of you actually sleep. Those are penetrating words, words we want to gloss over. But they are there. And we can say it's rare. But God still is a God who protects his people. I believe Ananias and Sapphira are going to, were, I believe they were believers. I believe the Holy Spirit was in them. That's why they could lie against them. And so I believe we're going to meet them in heaven, interestingly enough. They didn't lose their salvation. They just shortened their stay on earth. That's a sad lesson, that God wants his church to shine and to thrive. So as I say, that's a difficult passage to deal with. It was the one given to me. Uh, I hope it gives us all something to ponder as well. Um, But let's stay on the winning team, okay, folks? That's a good thing. We have a God who is so gracious and compassionate. And when we come to him and say, Lord, I sure blew it, he loves to forgive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a redemptive God. You're merciful, you're compassionate, your loving kindness never fails. 
You love to remove our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. You want to make and cleanse us and make us whiter than snow. And we thank you for that grace. And thank you sometimes that we have to learn those lessons. Just as we do with our own children, we have to teach them that to trust and obey uh, is the only way. And so uh, we just pray that we would heed this passage as well in uh, whatever we do. Help us to be honest, to be authentic, to be the people you call us to be, and not to pretend otherwise. Amen.